There's all these different kinds of reality shows. I think it all kind of started with Trading Spaces. And, you know, I don't really like those shows. I, I don't like them because, number one, I get jealous. I mean, what does it take to get a house made up like that? What's it take to get a to, to get that kind of nip and tuck, you know, uh, to get that kind of bodily makeover, house makeover, or whatever? But you know what? There are times that I guess you need a makeover. And I would have to say today that we need a makeover in Christianity. I think Christianity is is suffering in a major way. We have been uh, we have been in so many ways, uh, I guess, wrongly portrayed. Everything from protesters to uh, accusations, Christianity looks like fighting, looks like hypocrisy, looks like corruption. All these things, all these are elements of, of, uh, of the image that is out there uh, of Christianity. And it's not an accurate image, I don't believe. It, to some degree, I think it is an accurate image. And, but I do think because of these pictures that, that make up, um, I guess, so many people who profess Christianity, there's a need for a makeover. Uh, 21st century uh, Christianity is certainly swimming upstream. Uh, we've been stereotyped by the print media as irrelevant buffoons and typecast in movies as out-of-date imbeciles and profiled by politicians as right-wing radicals. And some of it, again, is legitimate. But some of it, again, I think is an absolute misfortune that we get this kind of label placed upon the Christian faith. The reality is, is that we can easily live inside our stained glass windows here. Not that we have stained glass windows, but we can easily live with inside our building here and kind of not see it going on around us. We get around our Christian friends and our holy huddles and our holy small groups that can sometimes turn into bubbles, holy bubbles. And then we can, we can listen to James Dobson on how to raise our children and, and we can listen to, uh, to jars of clay in our music and we can... We can read books by Tim LaHaye for our entertainment and, and we can gather in Christian coffee shops and we just kind of become this bubble. And we don't really realize what the world outside the bubble really thinks and sees about us. And we just kind of go on all, of us, all, of us, all the time though not doing what God has called us to do. And the image of Christianity I think has been tainted because of that. Not the true biblical model of Christianity. I don't think is what we see in many lives and churches today. Ours, no different. And I think just what you need to do is just to kind of get around those who are not in the church. Not insiders. Get around them a little bit. Listen to them. Ask them questions. Oh, don't ask them on the pretense that, that you're trying to get the good answers from them. Ask them, what do you really think of these Christ followers that we call ourselves Christians? I think you might be surprised if you got around some people. They've either been burned or they've never had a good experience. They've, they're de-churched or they're not even in church and never have been in church. I want you to listen to a couple of just three interviews of some people that are struggling with a perception problem that I think really calls for an extreme makeover of Christianity. Watch this video.
I mean, I believe in Jesus, and I think he was a very inspired. His teachings were very inspirational. I'm all about Jesus. <laughs> I love Jesus, um, and I think that his teachings and his beliefs were pure. Well, Jesus was the first historical figure who didn't treat women as unclean second-class citizens. I think of um, a, a person um, who who was beautiful and, and loving, and and I think basically enlightened, like like. Like a, another Buddha, basically. You know? Jesus seems like, uh, if, if what the, the stories are true, he seems like a pretty alright guy. Uh, you have to admire anyone who would die for what they believe in. I have a lot of stereotypes against Christians, not against their faith, but the constructs of the church really disturb me because they seem to confine people's minds and not enable them to expand to other spiritual forms of expression. I think that they definitely messed it up. They, they um, rearranged things because they didn't believe or they didn't find certain things were true to what, what their own personal beliefs of it were. So I think of um, dogmatic, closed-minded individuals. Bible thumper. That's the first thing I think of. I think of... Um, pseudo-Christian people trying to tell you what they believe in and what you should believe in. Well, I think of this thing that Gandhi said, I would have become a Christian except I never met one. And, I mean, I haven't vet, met very many true Christians in my life. The most part, I think, of the people who should just be taken out back and shot because they don't apply the, the love is everything message of Jesus. And then I think of, you know, the, like five to ten Christians who I've met who are actually on the right page. We get a new series of messages today called Real Stuff. Because I, to be honest with you, I probably have never, well, I will say never, but I will say in a long time, of, it's been a long time since I've had such a heavy heart about a subject as this subject right here. Because, to be honest with you, I get really sick and nauseous. Literally, literally, physically nauseous when I get around the Christian bubble. Because the Christian bubble, I don't believe, is the bubble, is the reality of what real Christianity, real stuff Christianity should be and is portrayed to be. I hope that in this study that we will look at our own selves and if you sense from me at times a bit of disgust and even anger, because I'm sick of the cultural Christianity that I see in the Bible Belt of the South. And I hope, if anything, it will disturb us enough that we will look at ourselves and we'll say, am I the real stuff kind of Christian or am I a name-only, cultural, callous, kind of complacent follower of Christ? In fact, I won't even many times use the phrase that I'm a Christian because I am so unsatisfied with that term anymore. I will tell people I'm a Christ follower or I'm a follower of Christ. Because hopefully that is the description of what it means to be a Christian. That, I believe, is a true representation of that. And I think we're in time of a, 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 in need of a, an extreme makeover. This really became relevant to me whenever I was reading a book called Unchristian. Unchristian is a study that was done over a course of three years. And this unchristian study was of about 3,000 different people who were asked the question, these were outsiders, they are, these are the people that are outside the church, and they were asked the question, what is your perception 
of Christians and of Christianity and of evangelical faith. And the thing is, is this book really doesn't come across with a big agenda. Really, it's a mere couple hundred pages of a report profiling what the outsiders, those who are not followers of Christ, look at, think about when they think about Christianity. And what was most disturbing is that 49% of the outsiders had a bad impression of evangelicals. Only 3%, only 3% had a good impression. And the other 48% either had no judgment or really had a neutral judgment of Christians. So really what we're looking at is we're looking at very few really look at evangelical Christianity that are outsiders. Again, I'm not talking about the inside of the church. I'm not talking about if you went down to First Church on any town on the square in any town USA and asked them what they think about Christianity. If you go to the people that you work with, that you go to school with, and you were just to ask them, what is your impression? Most of them would either say, I really don't know or I really don't care about them. I really don't think highly of them. And I think this is a tremendous problem because sometimes we think as Christians if we'll just pound harder, yell louder, that the world is going to hear us. I don't think so. In fact, I think the world turns more and more of a deaf ear to us because of that very action. I think we need to re-examine just exactly where are we in our own Christianity. Take your Bibles when we find the book of Colossians. Colossians is, i got to give you a little bit of the background of it because we're going to spend the next month and a half there, that we really understand that what is going on in this time is, as, as Paul is writing to this church of Colossians, this is not a church that he started. It's a church that was started about 80 miles away from another church that he did start. I was a part of starting was the church of Ephesus. He spent a number of years at Ephesus, and while he was there, it's believed that Epaphras, who lived in, in Colossia, came and became a believer or was discipled under, uh, under Paul's teachings. And since he spent about three years there, he got quite a bit of teaching. And so Epaphras evidently, we believe, went back and started a congregation in this little town of Colossia. Nearby was Laodicea, another familiar church that we know in the Bible. In modern-day Turkey is where it's located. And so as this, this is, is happening, we've got to understand that this church is, is not one of, of Paul's churches, okay, in the sense that he started. This, this is a second-generation church start. And so as he goes on, and he goes on in his ministry, he ends up finding himself in prison in Rome. Well, he was in prison in Rome for living out the Christian faith, and that was illegal in that day and age. And so he was put in prison, and while he was in prison, he started writing what else do you do in an 8 by 8 jail? All right, you start writing. And so there are about four different letters that he wrote. They call them the, his prison epistles that he wrote during his time in prison. Three of them in particular, Philippians is kind of a standalone, but three of them in particular were written right at the same time. The letter to Ephesians, or Ephesus, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus, excuse me, the book of Ephesians, the book of Philemon, the only book of the prison epistles that was written to an individual in not a church, and then the book of Colossians. The thing is about the book of Philemon is Philemon was a member of the church at Ephesus. It's believed that he was a very wealthy man, and he opened up his house so that the church of Colossia could gather there. He was a very wealthy man, and the book of Philemon actually kind of ties into the same time period, and they believe that whenever he wrote the church at Ephesus, which is a coastal city, 
when he wrote to the church in, in, in Ephesus, he sent the same three letters at the same time. So the courier went by and he dropped off the letter to Ephesus, and then he went on to Colossians, he dropped off that letter, and then he went to Philemon and he dropped off that letter. So you can kind of see what was going on in the same time period as he's writing this letter. But as, as you look at Colossians, as we think about Colossians, we're going to see this young early church and we're going to see tension and we're going to see deception and we're going to see them struggling with how do I live out my faith in my day-to-day life? How do I live it out in my marriage? How do I live it out on the job? How do I deal with all of these different voices that I hear around me? And what I believe we're going to see is Paul writes this letter to this church. These early believers He's writing it, and I believe he's giving us one of the purest pictures of Christianity. And so today, let's do what I've heard counterfeiters have learned to do, or those who detect counterfeiting, is they learn to look not at counterfeit dollar bills. They learn to look at a true dollar bill. They study the true dollar bill, a real, genuine, authentic dollar bill. They study that, and from that, then they're able to detect the counterfeits. So let's today try to, for the next month and a half, try to, as best we can, erase the image, rewrite the image, do an extreme makeover of the image of what we see and understand and believe and what the world sees around us Christianity is. So that maybe we can get back to a more pure, more right form and image and expression of Christianity. Now, are we going to be perfect? No. We'll not find one perfect Christian out there. We'll not find one perfect church out there. It's always been said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. All right? So you're not going to find Grace Point Church to be perfect. You're not going to find any perfect church out there. But what I hope we can do is kind of whittle away some of the baggage that we picked up along the way, that we can rework and do an extreme makeover of our image so that we can make a greater impact in what God has called us to. In, in, this, in this life in which we live. So just take your Bibles, and we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And I would just encourage you, every week, bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, see me, I'll give you a Bible. But bring your Bible, follow along, go with me through this journey. I'll have you underscore things, circle things, write notes in the, in the margins, so this truly can be a study through a letter that will hopefully be more than an academic pursuit and in information, but it will be a transformation of our lives. This is what Paul said. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he identifies who he is, what he's about. By the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Timothy, if you know anything about Timothy, Timothy was one of the church leaders in Ephesus. Ephesus and Colossia, again, were very close to one another. They were sister churches about 80 miles apart. So there's a great relationship there. And Paul is identifying that it's not only me writing, but Timothy is also helping me in this dictation. To the saints and the faithful brethren. Who's he writing to? Is he writing to the unbelievers of Colossia? No. He's writing to the believers in Colossia. So this is a perfect message for all of you who are sitting in this room today. It's a perfect message for anybody who says, I want to be a faithful follower of Christ. This is your message for you today. The brethren in Christ who are at Colossia. Now what Paul does here is he gives a greeting that is His signature greeting. 
that 13 of the, excuse me, 11 of the 13 books or letters that Paul wrote, he gave this very next phrase in all 11 of the 13. The only two he didn't was First and Second Timothy. Here's the phrase: "Grace to you and peace from our Lord, from our from our God, shoot, from God our Father. Grace and peace. Grace and peace." He uses a Greek word there, cherus, and a Hebrew word there, uh, shalom. He gives a Greek and a Hebrew and he brings it together and he says, I want to give you, I want to send you, I want you to be, I want you to be known with grace and peace. Now I think it's a beautiful way to start a letter to a bunch of followers of Christ. A letter to a bunch of would-be Christians is grace and peace. Because grace is where we meet Christ. And peace is what comes as a result of Christ. You'll never see Paul greet them peace and grace. He always greets them grace and peace. Because grace precedes peace. And once I experience the grace of Christ, then I can experience the peace of the Prince of Peace. Just an interesting note there. But as you think about this passage of Scripture, and you think about this text today, what is it about Christianity Again, I'm going to keep coming back to the basics, coming back to the basics. What is it about Christianity that is irreplaceable? That is irreplaceable and that we can't live without it and we can't do without it and we can't rewrite it. Real stuff Christianity, number one, has an attractive aroma about it. Now, one of the things that this unchristian study book mentioned is that the image, and he summarized it in one sentence, he says, the image of Christianity in America is this, is that Christians are always against things. They're always against that. They're always protesting that. They're always boycotting that, whether it's Disney or it's whatever it may be. We're known best in this world for what we are against. Now, what a horrible image. There is so much that we can be for, but what we are known in this world is what we're against. That is an unattractive aroma. And what I want to see, what I want to show you in this passage is that there is a very attractive aroma that's going on here. You've got to realize, where is Paul? Paul is in Rome. Paul is a clear across two bodies of water across the nation of Greece. He is in a totally different part of the world in a Roman prison, and he is hearing something, smelling something coming from Colossia. He's having this sweet aroma that is coming his way that he is smelling. He is across the Aegean Sea. He is across the Adriatic Sea. He is all the way across into Italy, into a Roman prison. And yet he hears, and I would say that he smells a sweet aroma. Look with me in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 3. He says, We gave thanks to you. We gave thanks to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since. We heard of your faith. What does he say here? We heard all the way across thousands and thousands of miles we have been separated, but there has been an aroma that has come this way and that we have been able to hear you. Let me tell you this. I think what we need is aromatherapy in Christianity. We need to have a new smell about us. I can remember one day in high school, somebody got the bright idea of spreading Limburger cheese down the hallway. If you've never heard, smelled Limburger cheese, don't go and buy it just to smell it. It's horrible. 
They, was, they, they smeared it in the lockers. They smeared it down under the, under the baseboard. They smeared it in the classrooms. And as far as I know, I, I was in one of the hallways for one of those classes. They canceled the classroom. They canceled school in those classrooms for that day. They had to move them to the library, off campus, and different things because of the stench of Limburger cheese. You know what? Again, I have to say that I think we need aromatherapy. And aromatherapy is fairly new. I don't know if you know about it. But it's one of these things that is... Uh, it's, in fact, i got a bottle of aromatherapy right here. It even says on there, aromatherapy. bottle at Bed Bath & Beyond. I looked online. They have like 50 different products that at- fall under the idea of aromatherapy. Now, this is a stress relief aromatherapy. All right? Now, is anybody in here feeling stressed in your life? Kelly, are you a good catch? Here you go. Here you go, Kelly. It's coming your way. Anybody else feeling stressed in life? Come on. Now, nobody's going to raise their hand now. All right. All right, here you go. All right, here we go. Ready, catch? All right. Very good, very good. Now, now here's the thing. That's your aroma. It's not to drink. It's to put in the bathtub, all right? Creates all these bubbles in stress. Just goes away. We need aromatherapy in Christianity. We need a new smell about Christianity. And what, what he heard all the way in this thousands of miles and separated by land and sea, what he heard, what he smelt from Colossia was three things. And I believe if we can get back as a Christian faith, as Christianity, these three elements, that, that these three elements would define Christianity, not what we're against, that these three elements would define who we are, not what political stance that we're going to take, that these three elements would define what we are, I believe there would be aromatherapy in our culture. The very first thing that we cannot, cannot, cannot do without, it's irresistible, we can't do without it, is faith in Jesus Christ. That needs to define us. Now, we all have faith. You, you grow up living with faith. You came today assuming and believing that we would be here at 9 o'clock. You had faith in that. You had faith that when you go to work tomorrow that you're going to have a job. You're going to get up, you're going to get dressed, you're going to go as if you have a job. You're going to get the money from that job that you worked so hard at, and you're going to go and you're going to put it in a bank, a bank that you have faith in. Yeah. You're going to put some in a 401K, and I love, I don't love watching, I laugh at it, just watch right now, going down. You're going to enter into a relationship with somebody that you're believing, that you're going to have faith in, that they're going to be committed to you to the very end. Faith is something that we live with every single day of our life. However, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. If you haven't noticed, those banks are dropping like flies. They're even saying now in the news that job loss and job unemployment in America is leading us into a recession. And you know that 3,000 churches close their door every year, never to open again? We have faith in a whole lot of things, relationships, people, jobs, banks, and all that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you right now, they will constantly fail us. I need something that absolutely is unshakable. I need something that I can plant my life on, I can anchor my life to, that will define me, that will be a part of the aroma of my life, and that, that, that element will go throughout life with me. That element is Jesus Christ. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And for by grace are we saved through faith. The Bible has so much to say about faith and our relationship with Jesus. You can't get away from it. 
We've got to understand that that's one of the things that's got to define who we are and what we're about. Here's another thing that we cannot get away from. If we're going to talk about three very basic aromatherapies of Christianity, one is faith in Jesus Christ, but two is we need love for God and others. Now, I love it whenever God makes it simple, all right? And He makes it simple. There's sometimes the Bible is complex. There's no doubt. You get back there and reading in Leviticus and... You get back and reading in Lamentations, and you can really get lost in a whole lot of minutia. Now, there's a whole lot of truth there that you can, that you can gain from, but, but it, it can get tough, okay? But Jesus makes it easy at times. He gives us the crypt notes. When he tells us, if, if you forget everything, if you get knocked in the head and, and you forget your Bible and you get stranded on an island and, and, and it's only you and somebody else and, and, and you're trying to figure it all out and, and you can't remember anything about what you learned as a child growing up in Sunday school class, there's two things you can do and you'll cover it all. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. And how did he say this? He said it in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. If I could get into my heart and my mind, if I will just let the aroma of Mike McDaniel be that I have absolutely an awesome anchored faith in Jesus Christ. And, now some people won't like, like that, but as you can see from that video a little bit earlier, they love Jesus, but they don't like the church. That's the problem. The image is not Jesus. The image is the problem is the church has given a bad image of who Jesus is. But if I could learn to, to let love spill from my life and come off from me, then, then what a difference that might, might make. Mark Twain turned away from Christianity. Whenever he heard believers, Christian followers of Christ, condoning slavery. Buddha, excuse me, excuse me, Muhammad got his, um, his initial concepts and beliefs from Judaism and from early Christianity. But he turned away from it when he looked at the lives of the followers of the two faiths. This is what Brian Goodwin said. He said, A little more love in Christ, to Christ and to others might have changed the course of history for what is now is the Muslim world. I wonder if we would love God and love man a little bit more distinctly. Let that aroma be what spills off of our life. What difference would that make in our culture and in our time? I need to have faith in Christ. I need to have love for God and others. I need hope in today and throughout eternity. You know what? What needs to be the aromatherapy that spills off of my life is that there is hope. Hope. Gosh, what an elusive word. Here's a life principle for you. Hope is either an elusive dream or a present reality in you. See, some people try to find hope in so many other things out there. Substances, relationships, careers, dreams, ideas. They try to find hope in so many escapes or relief from stress or relief from life and they just live without this hope, and it's such an elusive, like nailing jello to the wall kind of thing. Or if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is not something that is elusive. It is something that is present. It is not something that is out there. It is something that is in here. 
And if this world needs anything, it needs to see people with hope. One boy told his college campus minister, he was an atheist. He said, I almost committed suicide last night. He came to this college minister um, to seek help. The college minister said, why didn't you commit suicide? He said, even though I'm an atheist, my parents are believers and they believe in a heaven and a hell. And it's based on that, that they just may be right and I'm wrong that I didn't commit my suicide. See, if this world would see Christians, and I use that word even now just to spit it out of my mouth as hard, if the world would see true Christians with a true anchored faith in Jesus Christ, with a love for God and others, and a hope, a hope that is living inside of them. What a difference that might make in this world. What a difference. If we could just rewrite the image. Real Christianity has, a, has, a, has an attractive aroma. I'll tell you what. Love, faith, and hope. These, by the way, and I didn't have time to go into this, but these three, this is almost a trilogy uh, of, of Paul. He says it in First Thessalonians. He says it also in First Corinthians. That always do you see faith, hope, and love mentioned together. And always faith comes first. This is a part what defines what real Christianity is. The second thing that we can't get away from, you just can't replace it. Real Christianity produces a flavor. Produces a flavor. Oh, by the way, I didn't point out these verses to you. I got tied up into it. Verse, Verse 4, look there. Since we heard faith, circle the word faith in Christ, and Jesus, the love which you have, circle the word love, for all the saints because of the hope laid up. There are the three words that he saw in there. The three expressions, the three flavors, or excuse me, the three aromas that came off of them is tied up right there in that verse. Now look at verse 6. Which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. See, there's a certain flavor about us that we need to make note of. And that flavor is not nutty. It's not rocky. I've seen a lot of nutty Christians and a lot of rock, uh, uh, hard-headed Christians. But it's fruity. Not tutti-fruity, but fruity. The fruit that he speaks of here is the fruit that is mentioned in Galatians. In John, actually, Jesus is recorded as saying fruit that remains. He's talking about a fruit-filled life. In Galatians... He talks about that very fruit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, the real flavor of Christianity isn't in the antis. It's in love, joy, peace, patience. It's in kindness, it's in goodness, it's in faithfulness, it's in gentleness, it's in self-control. That is the fruit that he saw. But notice this, that he said there, that the entire world is bearing fruit. He made that statement, the entire world. Uh, it's right there again in verse, um, look at, uh, let's see where it's at there. Look at verse, um, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up in 
uh, uh, for you in heaven, which is previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit. In all the world. See, there was something that was going on inside of them. They were fruit-bearing. Fruit reproduces fruit. Fruit reproduces life. Life in others. This is the fruit that I'm seeing, I'm seeing throughout the world. See, one of the things about Christianity is it is not meant to be kept. It is meant to be shared. And I know we get up here and we talk a lot about missions at Grace Point. And some people think he's drank the Kool-Aid too much. And he's always about going here and going there. But we've got such a need here. And next week we'll hear about some more developments in Mali and our partnership that's going on there. And then we're sending out another tr- group to Mali in November and another group to, to Mali in January. And, and then we've got a trip going to Mexico next a couple of weeks. Uh, and then we're looking at another, we're looking at a trip, to, uh, a visioneering trip to, to Turkey, maybe in February or March. And what's all this going on? Is because there's something about fruit and there's something about real Christianity is that we are reproducing life in, around the world. He mentions your, your, your fruit is being seen everywhere. Everybody is seeing it. I'm seeing it. Other people are seeing the fruit that you're living, fruit that you're producing in other people. Real Christians are world-class Christians. Rick Warren says it like this, world, Christian, world Christians, world-class Christians, excuse me, are the only fully alive people on the planet. Their joy and confidence and enthusiasm are contagious because they know they're making a difference. They wake up expecting God to work through them in fresh ways. I personally can't live without an up-to-date passport. I say to myself, how can I really believe in the Great Commission if I don't have an up-to-date passport? If I'm not ready to go anywhere in this world to take the good news of Jesus Christ and to let the aroma of my faith spill over, then how am I really being good? See, again, remember the fruits of the Spirit is goodness, is kindness, is, is love, is joy. This, these are the fruits of the Spirit. This is what I can't keep to myself. Am I really kind if I'm keeping my faith? Am I really good if I'm not sharing with others? Fruit reproduces life. But fruit is also increasing. Fruit is also increasing. He says, bearing fruit and increasing. See, you don't plant an apple tree to get an apple. You plant an apple tree to get apples. Constantly increasing in apples. You don't plant a little bud in, in, in the garden for strawberries to give you one strawberry. You want it to reproduce. And you cut and you split off and you, you plant again so that it's constantly increasing. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. You know what? I really kind of look at myself as a kind of patient person. Kind of. But I could be increasing in my patience. I, I kind of look at myself as a kind person, but I could be increasing in my kindness. See, real Christianity, let's just get back to it. There's a flavor about us. And the flavor should be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And it's not just so we can have a better life. It's so that those around us, it will reproduce life in them. And it's so that I can have 
yes, this much faith today or this much patience today, but I might have this much patience tomorrow. See, the real test of your faith isn't whether or not you're here today. Sorry, you might get a brownie point. That's about it. The real test of your faith is, is it producing kindness, goodness, faithfulness? Because see, what's being served up in this world, I'm afraid, is not the Christianity of this right here. Speaking of sights and smells and, and, and different things, I, I, I can remember the most exotic, if you want to call it that, meal that I was ever served was while we were living in Zambia. And we worked among the Tonga people, and the Tonga enjoyed um, a delicacy once a year called uh, termites, uh, or inswa uh, is what it was in, in, in Tonga. Uh, and so what would happen is once a year, it only happened once a year because the rains would come and the first rain comes, termites there have wings. So they just start flying. And so the first rain, you see all of these insua or these termites just going everywhere. And so what you do is you reach out and you grab them, you pluck off the wings and you eat it. Now if you really want to really beef it up a little bit, take them, pluck the wings off, fry them, and put some salt on it, and it really is not too bad. That wasn't the most exotic meal that I was served. Because, again, remember, we kind of get our, our perceptions, our, our, our thoughts, based on, on what we smell, on the aromas that we smell, and on the flavors that we taste. So we kind of lock it in that, oh, that's going to taste good, or, oh, that's going to taste bad. But here I was, uh, not only did we have uh, Tonga that we worked with, but there was also... Uh, some, some other tribes that were, were around us. And there was another tribe that had another delicacy. And I can remember we were going out to this village and, and to, to look at starting another church. And, and as, as we did, they, they prepared this meal for me. And it was a lot of people around. And it was a big kind of occasion that this white man's now in the village. And, and here they are. We're going to prepare this, this delicacy. And they put it on this platter. And they put, gave me the prime seat at the table and had the platter covered up. And and so I pull up to the table. I knew this was going to be good. I mean, this is their best of the best of the best, and they're giving it to me. And so here I'm sitting down. This is called the, this is the Ngoni tribe. The Ngoni tribe then opened up the lid from this, and it was a field rat, a healthy African field rat. Cooked, granted, charcoal, granted, but it still had the little teeth. And it still had the little tail. And it still had the little legs. And it's there in front of me. Now, all the sights and the smells of my pre preconceived ideas about rat was you don't eat rat. You kill rat, you shoot rat, or something like that, or you run over it. But you don't eat it. All right? So here it is. And all that I'm thinking is what it says in Luke 10, that when you go to somebody's house and they give you something to eat, you eat it. So my prayer was that day, God, I'll put it down if you'll keep it down. And so here I am with this plate of rat in front of me, and I'm looking, what part am I going to eat? And so I picked up the rat, and I began to gnaw on the back leg. I figured there's probably more meat there than any, anywhere. I didn't want to get into the bone structure or anything like that. And so here I am, I'm chewing on the back leg, and you know what it tastes like? Chicken. Uh, it does. It tastes like charcoal, charcoal chicken. 
And, uh, but you know what? My perception was, grow sick, throw up. I ain't going to do this. I'm a rich American. I don't have to eat rat. My, my psyche, my thought, my image of a rat is not something to eat. But the Ingonis, it was something to give a guest. See, the, the Christianity that we're serving up, we're thinking we're serving up a beautiful, delicate offering. But when the world looks at it, it looks a lot like a rat. And I just wonder, if we had a little bit more faith and a little bit more love and a little bit more hope, and if we would exude from our lives fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on, would the world see Christianity differently? Would you pray with me? I want the band to come up. The ushers, if you all come at this time. We're going to kind of combine our response time with our offering time. But I want to pray, and as we pray today, I want you to take just a moment. As you think about giving, as you think about living, as you think about going from this place, if your unbelieving outsider friends were to look at your life, how would they see and view your offering? Would it be a delicacy of a rat? Or would it be a beautiful offering of love, joy, peace, patience? Would it, would it, would it involve hope? Father, we thank You for this time and the opportunity to respond and the blessings and the privilege of responding to You. And we would pray that, Lord, that in this place You would make of us a beautiful offering. That as we go out into this world, Lord, our response would be the same love that You poured out on us, Lord, would be the same love that we give to others. Lord, we bless You. We thank You for the time of giving. We thank You for the time that, Lord, we can be challenged and maybe present our lives as something more beautiful than this world is seeing. But we bless You. We praise You. In Jesus' name.